Oh, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We'll be continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes today. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. It's found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there. And boys and girls who are staying, you have your own version on page 11. And if you'd prefer to turn there in your own Bibles, you're welcome to. It's found in the Pew Bible on page uh, 522. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can um, take that with you. That's our gift. So now you can go ahead and take that down, please. This slide. Thank you. So as you guys are turning there, I want to take your memory back to something that might have happened in your home a long time ago, or maybe just this week. That's not fair, screams the toddler whose sister got something he didn't but also screams the young person whose life is being just ruined by her parents. Screams the honest coworker who watches the liar get the promotion. You know, so often people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But from the perspective of those in the faith community, from those who would identify as God-fearers, according to this passage, this text actually today is going to dare to ask the harder question. And that question is this, why do so many good things happen to bad people? Now, where have we been in this book? So chapters 1 through 6 were the experiment. The writer tried all the various lifestyles or worldviews, we might say identities, to do life under the sun, a phrase that he uses to describe being a broken person around broken people in a broken world that just doesn't work. And he realizes all these different things, whether it's materialism or sensuality or extreme religiosity or scientism, whatever he tried on, he realized they're just coping mechanisms. They don't actually help people flourish in a broken world. So after that analysis, this philosopher, pastor, he gave specific instructions then on how a wise person should go about their life in this broken, messed up world, how to deal with people like us. And then having given us specific guidelines last week, he basically comes to the point where he says, look, wisdom can help you deal, but you're still going to see really frustrating stuff, a world of contradictions. But wisdom means choosing joy in spite of all that junk. So with that backdrop, we now get to today's text, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. Again, it's found with you on page 10, page 522 in the Pew Bible. We have it up on a slide for you. This is God's Word. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. 
I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even as we read through this passage, we see that it is just enigmatic. And so we thank you that you give us hard things to understand. So, Lord, we ask that you would indeed send your spirit even now. Open this text up to our understanding that we might know your truth, that we might gain wisdom for the frustrations of being in a broken world. We pray that we would see the beauty of your gracious provision for us in Jesus and that we would cling to him alone. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see just a cursory reading through this text that the wicked are commended because they seem to be winning. But since God's people know what really good is, we know that by faith we can still find joy in a toilsome life where the wicked win. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When the bad wins, God's people know the good by enjoying joy in an ugly world. See, the wicked may get away with murder, but since the fear of God is our good, we live with defiant joy. So he jumps right in here in verses 10 and 11 and shows us the the wicked get away with murder. It begins either with him actually watching a funeral or him maybe hypothetically speculating about a funeral. But either way, he sees someone who he calls wicked. He sees this wicked person buried. They're called wicked, and yet it tells us they are praised for their religious observance. It says they're praised for going in and out of the sanctuary. They're called wicked, and yet they're praised as being religious. And he says that is so frustrating, which is a good modern way to translate that Hebrew word translated vanity. It's frustrating. It drives us nuts. This biblical writer is sick to the point of disgust with hypocrisy, just like you. Never fall into the trap of thinking that the Bible is a bunch of rules or Christianity is about religious performance and jumping through hoops and making impressions. Verse 10 tells us straight up that such performance-based religion is frustration and emptiness. This pastor philosopher here, probably Solomon, tells us that such a thing is folly. It's not wisdom. Even when that person is praised, he tells us, don't fall for it. He tells those who fear God instead, own the frustration. He says outright, that is so frustrating. It's vain. It's vanity. Don't hide your frustration. But it does make us ask the question, why are people like that ever praised? Why are the wicked ever praised? And he answers for us. Look with me at verse 11 there. What's he say? They're praised because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. And so the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls in their version. Since God doesn't punish bad people right away, our hearts do more and more evil. Now, boys and girls who are here, you know, don't you? If you get away with it once, you're going to do it again, right? The rule may be on the books, but it's going to take all their resources to enforce. So I'm doing it. My grandma used to say, well, God's going to get you for that. (laughs) 
But we know as adults, that's very rarely true, is it? Life actually doesn't work that way. The bad people often win. Here's how a fellow pastor put it in his book. He said this, he said, many people discover that when they finally do the thing they are not supposed to, no lightning strikes, no harm befalls, and they can still have their latte at Starbucks. See, with pets and, and with toddlers and with young children, immediate consequences, quick judgment fixes the situation, right? Now, I know all the hippie, free-range parents are like, that's just behavior modification. But God's Word tells us, actually, no, it's deeper than that. God's Word tells us in verse 11, because God doesn't treat us like pets and toddlers, we are actually more and more prone to evil. His lack of immediate judgment does affect our hearts because it's about the heart. And we often in church world, we operate as if it's about behavior, don't we? We get stuck in this Christianized karma thinking that God's favor is a product of our behavior. And so I try really hard to do good because God will give me good. And so when I see people not doing good, but they get good, I have a crisis because that's not how I think it works. I went to Baylor University, a big religious school in Texas, and most of the student population had a religious background, and it's very obvious as soon as you got there on campus, you could tell who actually had a vibrant relationship with Jesus that was real, and who had been forced to be this good little religious person all through high school, and now did not have the police. They just went crazy, doing all sorts of stuff. You would think that little Baylor knew who's bad, because... It was all about behavior, and then when the behavior enforcers were gone, they could do whatever they wanted. See, that's a, that's a symptom, isn't it? Because God's people, we in church world, we often fall into the trap of trying to know the good by acting good. If I act good enough, God will give me good in my life. But this passage wants us to see, no, when, when the bad wins, God's people know the good by enjoying joy in an ugly world. We're going to come back to this later, but I want you to, I want that little phrase, enjoying joy. I want that kind of just to stick there in your mind, kind of just chewing here for a little bit. I want you to ask yourself this question over the next 15 or so minutes. How good are you at enjoying joy? See, because what we're going to see here is that instead of bemoaning those sinners out there getting away with murder, he instead turns the question inward on us and asks, why should I fear in verses 12 through 14? He's going to show us that the fear of God isn't karma, it's faith. Look with me at verse 12. It says this, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. So even though he sees accomplished sinners, let's call them, he sees them not being punished, even having a good life. He has this defiant faith. He says, yet I know. Here I stand. I stake my life on this. This I believe. And what does he believe? He says that it will be well. Literally in the Hebrew, it's good will happen to the God-fearer. That's a biblical phrase that we don't use very often, a God-fearing person. It means to be in a gracious covenant relationship with God, being one of God's people, not jumping through his hoops to manipulate him into blessing you, but having a heart that has been changed by his grace so that you worship him, 
You revere Him. You fear Him. And added to that statement of faith, did you notice that He ties on the reason that it works there at the end? This is how they don't fall into the hypocrisy that we saw earlier. It says, why? Because they fear before Him. The wise, the God-fearer lives their life in God's very presence as if he's actually, I don't know, real and right there. The toddler, the pet, what do they do? They look around, see if the authority figure is near, and if not, they do the forbidden. See, the one who fears God doesn't have to look around. They live their whole life as if God is right there. They fear before Him. This is made explicit in the New Testament. It's only hinted at here, but that God is absolutely with His people in the person of Jesus Christ. That when we place our faith and trust in Him alone as He's offered to us in the Gospel, we're actually united to Jesus. And so not only is what's true of Him true of us, but we're actually with God permanently from that moment on. God is with us. We don't go in and out of God's presence based on our behavior through our Christian life. Although we often think we do in church world, don't we? I've been good today. I read my Bible today. Didn't speed. Didn't call down curses upon that person when they cut me off on the turnpike. God's going to give me good today because I've been good. On the other hand, when we do blow it, oh man, I got to earn my way back. I got to be good for a couple days so God will bless me again. I know you do it. I default to that too. See, but his defiant truth just destroys all that. This I know. I see bad people being blessed. I see that it's not about Christianized karma. I see that something else, that God has promised to do good. This I know. See, if we have confessed faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, we are in God's presence from then on. We walk with him in that truth, and he promises us good will happen. Now, this is not wishful thinking. This is faith in God's promises. This is believing even when it's hard. Verse 13 shows us that this is defiant faith in the face of an ugly, ugly world. Look with me at the kids' version of verse 13. I really wanted to capture this. So here's here's how I put it for the boys and girls. It's on page 11. It says, Good will not come to bad people who ignore God. They will not live a blessed life because they don't live as if God walked next to him. He's so worked up at this point, he actually changes the usual word order in Hebrew and starts talking like Yoda because he really wants his original readers to get this. He says, good happen will not to the people who like this. It's, it's, it's very emphatic in the Hebrew. He wants them to understand, look, it may seem as if the wicked are winning, but he defiantly knows by faith God is a just judge. And good will not happen to those people eventually. See, it's Solomon's faith here in verse 13 in a God of justice, which lets him rest in God's love for him. You know, our culture has this idea, doesn't it? I bet it's in us too, that somehow compassionate love and justice, being just or judgment, that those are somehow separate and that you have to overcome one to have the other. But it's not true. A major part of love is actually judgment. It is justice and judgment that helps love endure. Let me give you an example of this. If you have been terribly wronged in your life, 
and every one of us has. One of the joys that the Bible promises to the believer in heaven is our vindication. That God will one day, someday, judge those who have wronged His people and will see it. That those who hurt you may escape judgment on earth, but God will judge them. Now, for some of you, the idea of God's judgment still grates on you. Like, I don't know about that. But the Bible shows us over and over that God's judgment exists because God hates injustice. God hates suffering. God hates oppression more than anybody else. He hates it so much that he got involved in it and fought against it in the person of Jesus Christ. And he promises to fix it one day, someday. I want to give you a really good example of this. I want to introduce you to a person. I want to give you his biography first. So first, he was a professor at Yale University. Still, actually, he is a professor at Yale University. He was a professor at Fuller Seminary out in California. He was a major Protestant leader in Eastern Europe. He was born in the 1950s in Croatia under the communist regime. And that communist regime not only tried to crush the Christian church of of which he was a part, it even actively persecuted pastors of which he became one as an adult. And then he got to see firsthand, if you remember your history, just the butchery in the Balkans in the latter part of the 20th century. He got to see all of that. This man knows suffering. And yet this man, his name is Miroslav Volf. He wrote this book, a famous book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he has this amazing quote I want, I want to share with you here. Here's what he says. He says, In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. I'm going to stop there and read that again. Are you tracking with me? The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. See, what he's saying there is this. For those of you who value nonviolence, and he would count himself among you, He says, our position is only possible if we believe that one day, someday, God will make the perpetrators pay. If we don't believe that, we can't help ourselves. We will seek to make them pay here and now with violence. That's what's going on in this passage. That's how verse 13 answers the concern of verse 12. One day, someday, God will make good for his people by making it not good for them over there. This is hard, isn't it? this, This is robust, gritty wisdom for the real world, isn't it? I mean, this, is, this is wisdom 301. If you're hoping for wisdom 101, you've got to come some other time. This is the hardcore stuff. This pastor philosopher is not sugarcoating life here, is he? He's not trying to put a nice religious veneer. Oh, everything's going to be okay. Just have faith. He gets to how difficult it really is to believe God's promises and walk in wisdom in a world riddled with foolishness and wickedness. It isn't easy, is it? I mean, look how honest and candid he is in verse 14. Look what he says. 
He says there is a, a vanity, a frustration that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the... Let's stop. Can I get some verse 14 action? There we go. Let's try this again. There is a vanity, a frustration that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Here's how I put it in verse 14 for the kids. It says this, it says, It bugs me that the world doesn't work that way, referring to verse 13. Faithful people often have a difficult life, and faithless people often have an easy life. That's so frustrating. Can't you feel his emotion here? See, Christian or not, it is absolutely reasonable for us to ask, why do the wicked prosper? If God is a God of justice, if he's this holy, if he's this powerful, why do the wicked prosper? And it's actually a major theme in much of the Old Testament, especially Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And the Bible asks that question because it is a fair question. It is only a superficial, insecure, Christianized karma that's scared of that question and says, oh, you shouldn't ask that. Because most of us at some point have asked, why doesn't God do something about the evil? This pastor philosopher takes that question very seriously. He owns the reality that under the sun, evil often wins. The good often lose. The faithful often suffer. And he admits it is absolutely frustrating. And he doesn't have an easy, saccharine answer. Why should we fear God then? What are the wise supposed to do when such folly and wickedness is all around us? When the bad wins, God's people know the good by enjoying joy in an ugly world. And so we see that wisdom, fearing God, is defying gravity in verse 15. That when the ugly tries to bring us down, we have defiant joy. Remember what I said earlier, summing this passage up. He basically says, look, wisdom can help you deal. But there's still going to be frustrating stuff. A world of contradictions. And in the end, wisdom means choosing joy in spite of all that junk. We get that here in verse 15. Look with me at verse 15. It says this, says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. We miss it in English, but there's a great play on words here. If you remember back in verse 10, he said the whole city comes out and they praise or they commend the wicked religious man. And now he uses the exact same verb here to say he instead praises or commends joy. Let them praise the wicked. I praise, I triumph in joy. It sounds too simple, doesn't it? We kind of want to just disregard it because it just sounds too simple. We need something more profound, something harder. Don't just tell me this. Be happy, eat, drink, enjoy the life you have. It's got to be more complicated than that. It can't be that simple. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's let's look at your verse 15 there on page 11. Since there's nothing better in this broken world than eating, drinking, and being happy, I praise joy, and you should too. Have parties to deal with all the troubles of this world and the life God gave you. It sounds suspicious, doesn't it? It sounds simplistic. It sounds naive. 
It sounds wrong. You know, when we were church planting in Boston before the Lord called us here, one of our key actions for our church plant was party. We had worship and party and some other values, but I remember party was one of our big ones. And one of the best things we ever did was we had a just because party. We advertised it in the neighborhood online on our social media, just, just because party. Why not? And man, we ate, we drank, we danced, we sang. We had a great time. It was such a good time of fellowship. I remember talking to one of my neighbors afterwards, and he said something along the lines of, you know, I didn't really know that Christians valued fun like that. Honestly, I kind of thought it would be a sin or something. And we get why someone would say that, don't we? Right? We've earned that. But you know, our Savior was chided by the religious people of the day for being a drunkard and a partier. When they questioned why his disciples didn't fast more, his response was, I'm here now. It's time to party. They can be sad when I'm gone. That's Matthew 9, uh, 15, if you need to check me on that one. What do Jesus and this pastor philosopher of Ecclesiastes know that we miss? Why are we suspicious of joy? Why don't we enjoy our joy? I think a big part of it is our rich theology that we have of God's absolute and utter holiness and sovereignty. And we also have a rich, robust biblical theology of our own sinfulness. And we see the gap between the two. And because we see that gap, it makes us take what God has done for us in Christ very seriously, which it should be taken seriously. But it can create a subculture of us that's a little too serious. My office is right down this hallway here, this main thoroughfare, and you may have noticed or not that I like to put ironic and humorous things right outside my office door. And I want to share with you the one that is currently up outside my door. Okay, we got this. So here we go. Matthew 18, 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's how Presbyterians respond. <laughs> you either get this picture or you don't. I can explain it to you. I can't understand it for you. So good luck, okay? And if you really can't understand this picture, that's because it's a mirror showing you your issue. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We are a very serious Christian subculture as Presbyterians, aren't we? And we can fall into the trap of thinking that seriousness is a mark of maturity. In fact, it was a very short time ago, so short that you would be embarrassed that we have this thing called a book of church order that tells us how to do church. And, and one of the things it used to have as a written down qualification for elders was they had to be grave. Not in Bible. They, could, they couldn't quote that one anywhere. Jesus was never called grave, but it was a very cultural thing that officers had to have. And it was only within the last decade removed as a biblical qualification because we couldn't back it up from scripture. That's how intense our subculture is, that to be an officer, you had to be grave. But God's word here tells us joy, mirth, celebration under the sun is a mark of the wisdom of the God-fearer. It doesn't sound like wisdom, does it? Let's own that. It just doesn't. Church is under attack. We're losing the country. We've got to take life seriously. Get in the fight. No time for joy. 
But notice, he takes life very seriously. Look at the text. Where does he commend joy? In the, quote, toil through the days of his life. He's not being naive about the impact that folly and frustration have on our hearts. He calls it toil, and he says in the midst of that toil, there's the word for sorrow. It's the word for travail used of a woman in childbirth. It's the, it's the word for trouble. He says, in that I commend joy to you. Eat a good steak. Have a beer with some friends and laugh. And it doesn't sound very religious of an answer, does it? See, if you really fear God, here's what's going on. If you really believe His promises, then you are empowered by His grace to walk in His wisdom. And you'll have contentment even in the folly and wisdom under the sun. And without that contentment, we struggle to enjoy our joy. See, it really is an indicator if we believe the gospel or not. If we still think that God is upset at us for our sins. Because remember, we're big into God's absolute sovereign holiness, and we're big into our absolutely not being that way, utterly sinful. That's a pretty big gap. And so if we still think that, yeah, that big gap is there because, you know, deep down, well, I mean, he didn't fully pour out his wrath on Jesus for our sins. There's still a little bit I'm responsible because I'm so bad. And he said, there's got to be a little bit I'm still responsible for. So I I need to suffer for some wrath, too. I I can't be too happy or then I'm not suffering because Jesus' suffering wasn't enough. And so I can't be happy about that. I've got to be sad because my sins aren't fully forgiven. I mean, if God is still upset about our sins, why should we be happy? You better be grave. We have to be serious. We have to be somber. Because we function so often as if it's Jesus plus our seriousness that saves us. And that's not biblical Christianity. And that doesn't give us wisdom to deal with the junk in life. See, salvation in Scripture, though, is presented as a banquet of joy, especially throughout the mean Old Testament. It's a banquet of festival joy, a party, a celebration. It's the county fair with the best-tasting, worst food ever. There's an entire table of fried butter in Jesus' name. (laughs) See, and the gospel in Scripture is a festival of joy unlike anything we've ever known. Salvation in Jesus is not just a legal abstraction in Scripture. The Bible uses feast language so we can taste the sweetness of it with our heart. So we can savor, savor it with the palate of our soul. We can know then a defiant, palpable joy. That joy is predicated on the wrongs of verse 14 being reversed on verse 13 coming true of the murderers, the monsters, the Hitlers being given their justice, vindicating their victims. But the problem with that is the Bible teaches that each one of us is a little Hitler. If the hidden things of our life were known, there would be so many calls by people around us for our justice, wouldn't there be? See, the only way we get to have festival joy is because Jesus left the joy of heaven 
to live in our world of folly and struggle and wickedness. And on the cross, he took the judgment that we deserved. If you are united to Jesus by faith, if you have placed your faith and trust in him alone, your day of judgment already happened at the cross. God's wrath for your sin was fully poured out on Jesus and he judged him a sinner worthy of death and he crushed him for your sin. Wrath is not waiting for you. And so you can enjoy joy now. Oh dear Christian, repent of looking to Jesus plus your seriousness, plus your behavior, And instead, drink up the joy of the gospel he's given you. Others of you may be here listening to this, and you struggle with joy because you've been so hurt. You've been under such unfair treatment from others, out the church and inside the church. And your heart aches for justice. I get that. Hold on to the truth of verse 13. It is coming. God is not mocked. But at the same time, before a holy God of justice, the Bible is clear that we are all in trouble, even those who've been hurt. If we think, if if we got what we think we really want, if Jesus did come to earth with the sword of God's justice in his hand, none of us would stand. But thanks be to God, Jesus did not come with a sword in his hands, he came to get nails in his hands to die on the cross for our sins, to absorb the wrath and judgment we deserved. Now, when you place your faith and trust in Him, you will get that forgiveness and you will get this promised joy. Don't you want that? Come and claim it in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you come to us with difficult, enigmatic texts that challenge our presuppositions, that challenge our assumptions, that cut us to the core of our idolatrous hearts. So, Lord, I pray for us Christians here in the room. Lord, I pray that you would give us deep repentance for looking to our behavior, our seriousness, plus Jesus for our forgiveness. And instead, Lord, would you help us to rest upon him alone and know that in him you give us good. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, especially those who've been hurt and feel it. Lord, I pray that they would hear in their very heart the message that Jesus suffered with them and he suffered for them. And I pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners, you'd be true to your promise. Would you draw all people to yourself? Even now, Lord, would you cause people to confess faith in Christ and cling to him alone for forgiveness and joy. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.